Hey everyone, it's Paul here with the Divided Families Podcast, and I just wanted to preface these conversations between Eugene and two staff members from Al Otro Lado, whose inspiring work you will hear from on this episode. Uh, I wanted to share a quick personal anecdote about why this topic of family separation at the U.S.-Mexico border resonates with me so much. And it's because of an experience that I had when I was in high school, actually, of uh, volunteering with an organization outside San Diego, helping set out food and water and basic clothing supplies for migrants uh, crossing the border into the desert. And I remember we were in the scorching sun, and I I remember thinking to myself, wow, um, you really have to be determined, you really have to be motivated by external factors um, to decide to make this journey uh, because so much is at stake. But for those who might not have had that kind of personal experience, I strongly recommend a TED Talk actually by the litigation and policy director of Al Otro Lado named Erica Pinedo. Uh, And the TED Talk is called What's Really Happening at the U.S.-Mexico Border and How We Can Do Better. And Erica Pinedo discusses these issues and very poignant stories of family separation caused by U.S. government institutions much more eloquently than I can. But I think what really hit home for me is how she talks about and also how Regina and uh, Melissa talk about on this episode with Eugene, how once you start learning about the magnitude of family separation and how complicit we are in the separation, you really can't get it out of your mind. It's like the red pill and blue pill uh, from the Matrix. And I too often wondered uh, for a long time of wondering, you know, why aren't my friends and colleagues as outraged and upset and, you know, out on the streets um, like I want to be and I feel like I should be after reading about and learning about these issues even firsthand. And hopefully, I think with this episode and with other episodes that we try to show on this podcast, it helps us try to empathize more with each story and try to find common strands that we can use to uh, uplift each community together. And I think the last thing that I'll mention um, before turning it over to Eugene was that Eugene was able to do this interview in person at the office of Al Otro Lado uh, while he was in LA earlier this year. And you'll notice this with the, with the bird chirping in the background. But I think there's something to be said about just how tight-knit Eugene said the, the staff members and of the organization were and almost like a family in itself. And I think just something about that was very beautiful for me and that even an organization with uh, a mission that's so powerful um, across the U.S.-Mexico border can be uh, like a family that helps other families uh, from being separated. So I've already gone on too long with my introduction, but uh, I think that's how much this episode meant to me. So without further ado, here's Eugene and Al Otro Lado. decorated 
office that I really enjoy um, walking through. But it's a binational social justice legal services organization that serves indigent deportees, migrants, um, and refugees. Um, and it's based, uh, it, they work primarily in Tijuana, Mexico, and also the southern border in the U.S. I'm here with Regina Ramirez-Alexander. She's a DOJ accredited representative, and she's going to be talking with me about the situation at the border. And also, this is a very unique kind of binational organization. Um, and also, she's also from Mexico herself. So I think we'll learn a lot about um, the situation at the border and, I guess, the stories that you have to tell. So could you just tell us a little bit about like how Al Otro Lado got started and how like what is special about a binational legal organization? Of course. Um, how Al Otro Lado started was Nora Phillips, our legal director, was working at uh, the Central American Resource Center at the time. And she has a friend who is the person that she started the organization with, Esmeralda. And Esmeralda was actually working in uh, Tijuana at a nonprofit down there. And they were going back and forth on the stories that they had seen when they were screening clients. And Esmeralda would check in with Nora to see how people who had been deported could come back to the United States legally. Going through all of those uh, responses and like going back and forth in their conversations, they realized that it would be a very unique way to start an organization that could provide legal services in the United States and also at the border um, with, I mean, given all the injustices from not only the Mexican authorities, but also the United States authorities. And I think it'll be really interesting to talk about um, the Mexican side because, you know, in America, we're, I mean... As Americans, we like to talk about ourselves, but we focus a lot on just our side. So I think um, it would be great to get into that a little bit. But uh, how did you get involved in the organization? So I'm actually an attorney in Mexico, um, and I came to the United States because I got offered a position in the Central American Resource Center. So I started working in immigration when I came to the United States, um, and that was in 2016. So um, Erika Piñero, who is our litigation director, she was working at Garrison at the time as well, and she started uh, working with Nora Phillips and Nicole Ramos, who was actually living at the time in Tijuana. And she asked a couple of people to volunteer if we wanted to go to Tijuana. And my colleague, Ricardo Diaz, who actually also works here, we both volunteered to come, well, to go to Tijuana on some weekends for like a deportee clinic slash asylee clinic. And at that time, it was only a couple of intakes that we had to do. And it was only a couple of us. I would say not more than four people would volunteer to go down. And mostly it was only Ricardo and I from our Garesen staff. But so when Erica left Garesen to work at Al Otro Lado, herself, Nora and Nicole, um, when they got funding for to, to hire new staff, um, first, Ricardo left, and then uh, when they got more funding to hire another staff member, they hired me. Is being an attorney something that you you know knew you wanted to do, or is it like I just had to choose something, so I chose it? And also, I guess part of that question is right now the issue at the border. So you know, like on the news every day. I mean, I'm sure that the, these problems have been there you know the whole time. But I guess from like the Mexican standpoint, were you aware of all of the problems going on, and is that why you wanted to be an attorney, or 
I had to pick something. <laughs> <laughs> no, definitely. I always knew I wanted to be an attorney. Um, I'm very passionate about justice. And I guess it sounds a little cliche, but I didn't, I would never like people who bullied other people. I would always be the one to stand up for them or like empower other people to stand up for themselves. So I always knew I wanted to be an attorney. It was a little scary. Although, you know, in, in, in Mexico, the system is different. Um, we just, it, there's only been a couple of years since it started being, uh, cases started being heard orally. It used to all be in writing before oh, wow. uh, yeah uh -huh. so it was a little bit more complex and um i guess i didn't actually i didn't start i didn't want to be an attorney just for, for immigration i did try to find a nonprofit in mexico to work in immigration because uh, this was happening obviously it wasn't to the extent that it is now or at least it wasn't in the media as much but i do believe that as much as we believe that the united states authorities are horrible to to migrants and asylum seekers i do believe that the mexican uh, system is even worse because we don't really have the resources to have systems to find people or even to locate people who are in detention how we do here in the united states and i mean given that's still really bad the system here is really bad i mean we can go months without finding a client that we know is in detention and if we actually if we can't find a client we'll know that They're probably like in the in, in a detention center in the deep south. Normally, that's what we know, like from experience, if we can't find them in the in the ICE detainee locator. But in Mexico, we don't have that system. So I do think it's even worse. But I mean, thank goodness now I'm that I'm at Otro Lado, I'm able to work both here in the United States and in Mexico as well. I'm doing this interview right after doing an interview with Human Rights First, um, which is also in L.A. I asked the attorney that I was speaking with, like, what is the difference between the media's portrayal uh, that you see on TV and then like the actual stuff that she sees, you know, on the ground. But I feel like for you, it would be even more different, maybe. So I just kind of wondered, like, what is the Mexican media's perspective of the situation? And also, I guess you can answer the same question, like here, do you think it's the same as what Americans see on the news? It's definitely, it's very different. I think, at least in California and the people that I've had the honor of meeting, I think we're, they're more inclined to read the news. I know that now everything really is through social media so like just This social, social platforms media. yeah so social platforms but i don't see as much interest of people in in mexico and that obviously it depends on who you hang out with and what job you do i mean I do have friends. I went to the uh, National University in Mexico. So I had the honor and the pleasure of having friends who were just as passionate um, as me for justice. So we would go to like protests in Mexico. and But all of that isn't actually portrayed in the media as it should. And it actually created ripple effects on other marches and other protests because it wasn't being portrayed accurately in the media um, as to like why protests were happening in in like other presidents governments and i guess specifically to family reunification i do believe that now the media kind of just forgot or like it was this like height and everybody wanted to be a part everybody wanted a piece of information and wanted a story from one of our clients or anything like that and then now it kind of just like went silent and i don't i don't really see enough portrayal or enough information being broadcasted on family reunification, family separation, really. But I, I do believe that our, um, our, our communications director does an incredible job. And I know that other organizations look at Al Otro Lado's platform and do get 
continuous updates on specific client stories. Mm-hmm. What do you think is like not in the news that you think should be in the news? Well, like I don't believe that right now they're still talking about family separation and how it's still going on and how um, I know we put a story well, our our communications director put a story out on an asylum seeker who who went into labor and CBP wanted to take the child from ICU and take take the child away from the mom. And we made a, a big media like it was outrage, but I didn't see it like in any any newspaper or any like big like New York Times. Or yeah, something. I didn't see it in either. Yeah. So I don't I, I don't think I feel, I feel like if it's not big enough for some news outlets then they won't actually put out a story on it Mm -hmm. and i guess while we're still talking about news like for the from the american perspective which like i'm obviously always a part of it just you know it always seems like there's like so many people trying to come in like that's like what you know whether you're left or right the situation on the news is like so many people are trying to come in and then like what do we do with all these people and the system's like not made for this Uh, on the mexican side is there like the same kind of news perspective of uh so many people trying to leave or is that just like a you know like overblown fact in our news i think specifically now with the caravans um like being held in tapachula and the most of the military and police forces being sent to tapachula to um to like prevent asylum seekers from coming into mexico i think now it's becoming more of a story but i do believe that if you're not involved in anything immigration related then you wouldn't know so i've spoken to people in mexico or even friends that have absolutely no idea what's going on unless i tell them or unless i like send them a link or anything like that and i I think that goes both ways that doesn't have to only be in mexico i think if if you want to be involved then you'll know or if people that are around you or care enough to make you involved then then you'll find out but if not then i don't think the story gets out and what is like your i mean obviously you don't speak for all of mexico but like you know your people that you know from from mexico like what is the kind of general perception towards the u.s uh maybe like in general and then also like for this situation too and you can uh be as honest as you want i guess but um yeah I think that's just like a, well, I think, something I was curious about. I think at least I can speak for, uh, I know from my friend's perspective that are attorneys in Mexico as well. And I think just everyone is tired of the United States like, burning down our houses and then not letting us like re- relocate for safety and and just to protect our families and protect our livelihoods and our life, you know? So I think it's definitely general that everyone is tired of the United States just making themselves like the protector of the world when in fact they're just creating more chaos and more refugees in other countries when it's not necessary and when you say like burning down houses and stuff is that like just in general or like is there a specific kind of situation well no no no. i i I, sorry i said that because one of my friends said that to us um Uh they were like well that's basically how they're creating refugees like you burn down my house then i come live in your house and then you don't like it because because yes, they're implementing all these dictators in other countries and, and messing with all these other governments. And then the result of that is all these people having to flee to protect their lives and their and their families and then they don't like it. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah, but then don't then stop intervening. And I guess going back to your time at El Otro Lado, like oh wait, how long have you actually worked here? I've been here for a year and a half year oh, only the american or like overall oh like well no sides? um with al otro lado so oh, okay. yes 
with al otro lado, I started working both in Mexico and here. But in Mexico, um, when I was as an attorney in Mexico, I wasn't working in immigration. Yeah, like what is a high point? And like, I don't really want to go into the low point, but I mean, if it helps kind of show the high point, like what are kind of the big, really memorable moments of, you know, like you're about a year or so um, working here? I think, well, meeting extraordinary human beings, honestly, both the people that I work with and the people that I work for, it definitely shows you how how much a person is willing to do to protect them, like themselves and, and their family. Mm-hmm. And are you talking about like fa- uh, clients or um, like people, like coworkers or both? everything i would say both i would say mm-hmm. both definitely um i do recall when family reunification happened earlier last year and i did come back thinking that we could we could basically do anything we set our mind to like nothing no no struggle would be too hard and we were definitely inspired by the parents because i mean that if they hadn't struggled and they hadn't been willing to do everything and anything to get back to their children that wouldn't have occurred Mm -hmm. so we were just the bridge for that to happen but i was really honored that we got the opportunity to not only meet them and and their stories but be a part of that extraordinary moment with them and that extraordinary moment you mean like reunification with yeah reunification um i think people don't actually know what reunifying these these families actually entailed so actually me and another co-worker had to go to well we didn't have to we went to mm-hmm. central america and we had to be in the car for at least like 11 13 hours to find one person and they were waiting for us eager to get back to their children and they never stopped texting they never stopped calling to see what was going on and i mean there's they don't know everything else that goes on like all the things we need to prepare but then we had to go to mexico and ask the mexican government to let them through legally so they could come back to the united states and reunify with their children and it it was so inspiring to see how how much how they're actually willing to go through to return to their children and to not leave them alone which makes makes you realize that i mean yeah you'd be willing to do anything to save your life and the life of your family so when people say that like they're all coming in and it's like gang violence it, it really isn't it, it like they need that's the only way to protect themselves and their families mm-hmm. is there like a moment that was really frustrate that seems like a very high point was there like a very like difficult frustrating point and you don't have to share that if you don't want to but uh i i seriously feel that since the trump administration began it feels like a low every day feels like a low every high point even if it's the smallest thing has a ripple effect in both a client's lives and in our life and in policy work as well but I do believe that there's just all these ongoing policies that change every single day. So we need to change our strategy every single day. And that's very tiring. We've we've learned to do things kind of in emergency mode. It's low. I mean, it's not really about us. It's about fighting for their stories and for justice. And I guess since we're almost at the end of the time that we have, I watched a TED talk about, you know, this the risks that attorneys face in this kind of work um, have you experienced any of that and also like how do you kind of if you know that you are at risk then how do you kind of deal with that too like is there anything personally that you do um i think that anybody who does this work is at risk um you're at risk of i mean it doesn't have to be 
asylum seekers it can be the abuser of one of your clients finding out that you're representing them so i know that our nonprofit organizations have specific not only like the privacy content on our contracts but as well as like security measures that need to be taken the fact that our legal directors got deported from mexico and were separated from their children as well is is insane that we actually need to be subjected to that or the the blacklist of like CBP that has against journalists and our attorneys as well. I don't believe I'm on the list. I've been able to travel back and forth freely, but I'm also a Mexican citizen. So I'm not sure if that would ever apply for me, but I wouldn't put it past them that that could happen as well, that I could be put in secondary inspection and be detained. I'm not sure, but I haven't had anything like that severely happen to myself, but we're always constantly like updating our our security measures both in the office at home and just making sure that that we're safe the last question that we usually ask is just is there anything that you'd like um, podcast listeners to know about the issue that they might not already know and this issue obviously is still like ongoing you know some things that we talk about it happened already um is there like what do you think that they can do if they want to get involved i think it's important to know that any help and anything you can do has a ripple effect that is of tremendous importance in everyone's life and even if it doesn't seem like it right now even if you're donating time or donating money or if you put money in someone's commissary when they're detained or write a letter everything has a ripple effect and it changes people's lives so i think it's important that people know that everything makes a difference if you're not being recognized like at a larger scale or i don't know if it's it's difficult because i believe that now with social media i don't want to say all the wrong people are famous but like all these like youtubers and influencers that who have that platform could be doing more and could be inspiring and and engaging in other things that do create bigger ripple effects of course but even if you are not an influencer or a youtuber or anything like that any small act of kindness is it goes a long way and it definitely changes the world and everybody yeah i definitely think that that's like the huge problem these days it's like you know there's so many things going wrong that you see on the news i mean i think that there have been things going wrong all the time like you know in history but it's just on the news and on social media and you're like oh like i I should donate ten dollars but it's not going to do anything (laughs) or like i should volunteer but you know it's not going to do anything so i think just being optimistic and thinking that it'll have a ripple effect is really helpful that oh sorry i didn't mean to interrupt and i i always encourage people to go and volunteer to our tijuana office because it's such a unique and incredible experience you get to meet incredible people and it's being on the ground just changes your perspective on on anything that you could think of and anything that you read when when you're on the ground it it changes and you want to do more you're so inspired by all these people that are i don't even how do people get cross like cross countries for safety it's incredible and everything they need to go through and all the the harm that they're exposed to as well and that they get here and we get to hear their story and we get to maybe help them and and find a solution or find them protection if not in in mexico um if i mean if not in the united states we can we can help them find protection in mexico so if anybody is interested in volunteering, we do have a spreadsheet of volunteer both in LA and in Tijuana. But I do believe that the Tijuana experience is definitely unique and is extraordinary.
So now I'm here with uh, Melissa Flores. She's the communication coordinator here. And she's going to talk through a lot of kind of the background and basically everything else that we weren't able to cover with uh, Rahina. So uh, could you actually just introduce yourself a little bit? Tell us about what you do here and then maybe go into the um, current situation at the border and what we were briefly talking about before we started recording. Of course. Hi, my name is Melissa Flores. I am the communications coordinator at Al Otro Lado. And my role is, um, I have many. I'm, I'm basically a one-person communications team. So yeah, she's I, how I got here. So. <laughs> <laughs> and I gave you the wrong address, of course. I handle all the social media. So I sort of guide the messaging um, and counter that with current events as well as things that we are doing within our organization. And as you can assume from the current state of affairs, there is just constantly a new headline. There's constantly a new policy that's being changed. There's constantly um, a new tragedy. There's just, you know, our attorneys are really overwhelmed. And in this work, when I speak with our attorneys, they say they've never seen anything anything like this Um We'll talk about our litigation later, but we do have some litigation against the what you would call what we're calling the asylum ban, but technically it's called the third country travel transit ban, which all in effect bans asylum. Because you're more familiar with the media, I asked the same question to Rahina, but what is the kind of the difference or do you think that the media is doing like a good job portraying the situation? If not, like, what are the differences? What do you think should be in the media that's not? And also one random note, there's a very loud bird in the background. So sorry to those listening, but yeah. Her this name what, is Rosa. Yeah, this is the life we here. Named so her. mm-hmm. It's the full experience. Um, but yeah, to the media question. Uh, yes, you know, I think as with, with, with anything, there's a love-hate relationship there. And when we are able to utilize the media in a way that brings um, public outcry that translates into change, particularly change in public policy. Uh, That's really great. And so, you know, we've worked with some amazing reporters. We've also worked with some reporters that are really just after the story and um, have very little concern about our client safety and privacy, where they've published you know, information that might jeopardize their safety. So, you know, we, we try and bring in the press when we can. We also keep our distance a little more than some other organizations might, just because the clients that we work with are very high risk. And what I feel is missing from the story is really how this isn't just a Central American issue. It is a global issue. You know, you yourself, you um, are working with separated Korean-American families, and I haven't seen anything in the media about Asian families, families from Korea. Also, there are a huge number of black migrants at the border that no one knows about. From Cameroon, we're seeing a large number of populations from Cameroon, New Guinea. Uh, The other day, not the other day, a couple months ago, somehow uh, a Chinese man came upon our offices. We were pretty sure he was um, a victim of human trafficking. By some miracle, we had a volunteer that day that spoke Mandarin. So we were able oh, wow. to, yeah, I don't, I mean, it's 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 wild. So uh, a lot of um, Iraqi families and, and of course now we will most likely be seeing an influx of Iranian families through which borders, I'm, I'm not sure which, but I know we already have families from the Middle East and Tijuana. So, I mean, I can only speak to Tijuana, but I think that's what's missing from the story that 
while over the summer the attention was largely focus on the caravan that was coming from the northern triangle cities it's really it's it's refugees and discrimination of of nationalities from all over the world and i think what's also missing is uh, i feel that the media sometimes takes cbp statements and or for those of you that don't don't know that's customs and border protection and DHS, Department of Homeland Security, and ICE, um, Immigrations and Custom Enforcement, their statements at their word, where we know that they're lying. We have cases that prove that they're lying. And so I think there needs to be just a dissemination of, of what essentially ends up being propaganda that's being put out there. So, you know, um, their talking points, you know, we have been able to see their talking points and really disseminate them and, you know, prove them to be essentially myths, like how immigrant populations bring more crime. When there have been several studies to debunk that. And in fact, those same studies show that areas, communities with immigrant rich populations have some of the lowest crime rates. So things like that. Let's go back a little bit to what we were talking about before. Um, I think that it was really interesting and I think that the listeners will really gain from learning about the Miss L case and also um, the work that you guys did last March I think yeah of course so the Miss L case was brought forth uh, at the height of family separation and it is a litigation brought by the uh, ACLU uh, American Silver Civil Liberties Union to really condemn what the government did in separating these families and order the government to reunify the families that they separated. This litigation took place last summer, July 2018. I don't quite know the the date. So the judge of the ni- in the Ninth Circuit ruled that the government had to reunite the families that they separated. The problem was, and what we have come to find out, is that original number was off by thousands. We have come to find out that they actually separated more than they originally told us or told the government. So in that case... Parents and children were united, but what the public, I feel, doesn't know or isn't aware of, and I don't, I don't blame them, is that that only applied to parents that were still in the United States and parents that were still, and the children that were still in the United States. It did not account for parents that had been illegally deported from like their the, children. Yeah, like the actually the, yeah, because like isn't most of the separation going to be between the two countries? So you mean that the, both the parents and the children had to be in the United States, but separated? Yes, exactly. Yeah, so it's like not even, it's like that's not the problem. <laughs> I mean, that is a problem, but like not the, you know, the larger problem is like across country it divisions. Is, right. I, I see what you're saying. It is a problem because the government, while they, you know, created this chaos, this at least, this order at least said, okay, now you have to clean up your mess. Whereas before yeah, mm-hmm. they could Definitely. have just been, you know, there, there was no accountability for them to reunite, to clean up their mess. And um, even now we're doing that because this fall, we appeal to the court to, to have the judge apply this order and apply it to parents that had been deported. Um, we were successful in um, having that class extended to um, a handful of deport, not a handful, about I think 18 parents total. And the only reason the judge ruled that, okay, the government has to allow these parents back in is that their deportation was deemed unlawful. It wasn't necessarily like a decision based on any 
ethics or morality. It was just that the circumstances under which their deportation took place was illegal. So either they were tricked into signing papers they weren't underst- that they didn't understand or they didn't speak the language or they were lied to and told that their child would be on the next flight or that their child they would see their child um later on so you know we really had to fight and prove those cases and, and obviously the records kept are kind of insubstantial so to prove a lot of that was really difficult but in march of this year we were able to bring back this was prior to the judge's order you know, I have to give our directors serious props. They are, they're serious badasses. They um, mobilized and decided to, you know, once the case, once the Miss L case was brought forth and we were able to identify the parents that had been deported, uh, went into Central America looking for these parents, literally with sometimes even just a picture uh, and into remote villages, into the mountains with the photo saying, have you seen this parent? We're trying to reunite him or her with his or her child. And we were able to, you know, uh, gather, I think, 100, a little over 100 declarations of parents that had been deported. 29 were able to travel. Some weren't because they were sick. Um, Some didn't because they were just afraid of what might happen because we didn't have a guarantee for them. You know, at that point, there wasn't a court order making the government allow parents to return. At that point, we kind of just, I mean, threw up a Hail Mary and really relied on mounting pressure that we created once we brought these parents into the port of entry there were there was media so in that way again media does help there was media there were clergy members there i can't remember if there were some members of congress that were there and to to sort of demand that cbp allow these parents that had been deported through the port of entry um so and we were able to successfully reunite all 29 of them which is great. Wow. Mm-hmm. But, you know, of course, it's still not over. They still have to move forward with their asylum case. And, you know, and immigration courts are, are far from fair mm-hmm. and impartial. Yeah, we talked to, um, at Human Rights First, the attorney there talked a lot about that. So um, if anybody is curious about that, go check out that episode. But Yeah, for mm-hmm. sure. Um, definitely do. It's pretty wild how unfair and, and partisan immigration courts are. So when people say they should do it the legal way, the legal way is completely rigged at times. Yeah, I um, didn't know about it until I spoke to her too. So uh, Yes, definitely check out that episode. So we So now with this new court order, we are going back into Central America. So now, now that we're bringing the parents back, we know that they have to be let in. Before, we didn't know. We were just like, this is the last, this is our last chance we have to reunite you with your children. Will you trust us to let, to take you on this journey? And, and they did, and it ended up having a relatively happy ending. But yeah, we're going back third week in January. Mm. Uh, oh, this, you mean in a couple weeks? Well, oh, in a couple weeks. Well, yeah, at the time of recording this, yeah, a couple of weeks. Yeah, in a couple of weeks, uh, we're bringing, I forget the number, six of our clients and then I believe three other parents that are being represented by individual firms, flying them into LAX. And while the government has been ordered to allow them in, we have no idea if they will be detained further once they are accepted. So while the judge said, okay, you had to let these parents in, the judge also kept out of the nitty-gritty details. So there, there wasn't necessarily... A system set forth like okay they're going to go through this port of entry and they're not going to be detained and here are the list of names so i mean we don't we don't know what's going to happen once they once we fly into lax um they could be detained we don't know and that's probably most of the time yeah we never really know we we, we never really know and I, and i think that's what's really scary 
right now is that, you know, you used to be able to rely on the law, whereas, you know, you would be able to say, oh, that's not legal. They can't do that, which I find myself asking our attorneys, like every time I see a headline, I'll say, wait, but that's illegal. Mm -hmm. And they're like, yeah. And um, they're like, yeah, you know, it's illegal. So it's funny that for all of the, um, you know, outcry of these people doing it the legal way and they're not following the law. And it's interesting that, you know, our own government cherry picks which laws they want to follow is what we're is what we're seeing. So, you know, we used to be able to provide solid answers to our clients, definitive answers, whereas now it's just like. Uh, For example, I was at a clinic at one of our clinics in Tijuana where we host Know Your Rights clinics and we have free legal consultations for asylum seekers that are stuck there. This one gentleman, we were preparing them for what to expect once they were processed by Customs and Border Patrol. And, um, you know, we told them to go into your phones, write the numbers of your loved ones or relatives, someone that you can call once you're given the opportunity, write them on a Sharpie on your arm or somewhere on your body because they will, they will be taking all your documents. They'll, they'll be taking all of your belongings away. And um, the man asked, okay, but they're going to give them back, right? And we were like, they should. Legally, they should. They have to, but they should. And so it, it's become like, they should do that. Mm-hmm. But... We don't know. But we yeah. don't know. Yeah. Mm. How did you kind of get involved in, you said you're from Los Angeles. So like, how did you kind of get involved with El Dorado and everything else? You might've done, you know, like some kind of similar work before. So like, how did you kind of get involved in this field? And why, I guess the bigger question is why? Actually, I was not involved in this oh, okay. at all. Um, it's even more interesting. I took a very, my life took um, really a, a, a 180. I was working, I was working in communication still, um, but my background was in hospitality. So yeah, I was doing, um, like social media for like restaurants and, um, and chefs or, or like certain products. Like I, one of the clients I had was a celebrity chef's gelato line. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I was also, um, DJing on the side. And how, how long ago was all of this? Less than a year ago. Oh, okay. (laughs) Well, I started working with El Dorado in March of this year. Okay. So um, yeah, 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 you'll continue your story. Yeah. So so yeah, it's it's it, it was at the height. And listen, I don't consider myself an activist. I don't think I've done enough to to earn that title. Um, there have been people in this work and in this space for so long. So you know, hopefully, I will I will earn earn that badge. But prior, I I wasn't really. You know, even though my family's from Mexico, I was born here. I'm first generation. It's really true. It's it's when things don't affect you, you don't you have very little reason or motivation to to get involved in issues, even when you think that they're not right. I mean, at least I can only speak for myself. You know, I, I was really lucky. I I have pale skin. I can probably pass for white. My parents have their citizenship. My, my family members, as far as I know, none of them are undocumented. And, you know, it's easy to think that there isn't a problem, especially when you live in L.A. and it's a very progressive bubble. And, you know, the idea that because Obama was president, everything was like, we're cool, right? Yeah. Like we have we're a black like president, like, right? right it's way. all good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, I was also so I, I never really took really took a notice and I was never passionate enough about certain issues to, to really 
speak out. And it wasn't until family separation, and I wasn't affected by family separation personally. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't have any family members that were affected by that. But when the news came out, I was, I'm still speechless. I, I Sometimes I wake up and I still can't believe that we did that. Something so barbaric. And I remember when I first saw that headline, I was um, at my fiance's office. It was like late at night. I was just working with him and I read the headline. I remember getting up from the table and like, hitting the table and he was like what and I was like I have to do something he's like what are you talking about I was like I I have to do something he's like what are you talking about I'm like this is crazy they're they're taking babies from their moms like I don't care how you feel about immigration how can we not come together and say that's wrong Republican or Democrat, like when did the treatment of children become a political issue? Like we can't even unite on, hey, you don't do that to kids. And I think that that's what I I was, I was, I was shocked. I, and I was, I was shook. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And it rattled me out of, you know, on a a personal note, I was struggling with, with depression and um mm-hmm. so that was also a huge part of the reason why largely I had been pretty apathetic in terms of like you know what was going on in the world and mm-hmm. and also at the same time you also feel like you kind of can't make a difference so I also kind of you know kind of that was in the back of my head when you know even after Trump was elected but um yeah this this shook me out of out of every bubble that I had been living in. And um, I, besides donating, besides contacting your elected officials, besides protesting, like what else can I do? And given my experience in the hospitality industry and also my fiance worked in that industry, I decided to just call in as many favors as I could from liquor sponsors and um bar owners, restaurant owners, and, and people to to unite everyone to hold like a, a really big fundraiser. Mm-hmm. And while I was planning that fundraiser, I was looking at organizations that I would, could donate to. I figured IESIS, they're fine. They have they get plenty of funding. Um, they do amazing work too. But um, I was like, no, they're fine. ACLU, they get plenty of funding. And so I was really focusing on smaller orgs. And I so that's how I stumbled across Al Otro Lado. So I invited the co-founder, who is now my boss, to speak, and we remained in touch. And I said, please let me know how else I can help. And she said, well, we desperately need help with our social media. I went on your website. I saw that you do that. And I said, done. And so for the for those eight months from like August to March, I was volunteering for them. And, you know, very peripheral level, like even still, even when I, as a volunteer, I still didn't really know what was going on. I just would kind of grab a headline here and there. I would salvage information from them when I could because they were so busy. And then in March, they they were like, would you want to work for us full time? And it was like, like, I almost started crying. It was like, yeah, one of the happiest days of my life because I had been waking up and asking and telling myself, you cannot lose sleep over whether a picture of gelato got freaking 70 <laughs> likes. Like that cannot be your life. Like mm-hmm. that's not, yeah, I, I, you know, 
so uh, since March, I have been working with them and it's, it's been crazy on the job, on the job training. Cause they, you know, they don't have time to hold my hand. So they're just like, great, cool. You start now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so yeah, so I, I've adjusted and it's been, um, it's been crazy, but having, you know, now that I know what I know and have seen what I've seen, especially going down into Tijuana, like there's no way I could do anything else ever. I've been like seriously red pilled. <laughs> <laughs> I think, no, that's a really incredible story. And I feel like uh, a lot of, well, I'm sure a lot of your friends too, but a lot of my friends, and I mean, even this podcast comes out of, you know, being shook <laughs> out of your, uh, whatever you were doing before. Are some of your friends also kind of feeling the same thing? Or do you think it's just kind of, you know, here and there, some people actually change uh, trajectories and kind of try to do more meaningful work? Do you have anything to add on that? Of course, of course. At first, it was hard for me that it seemed that none of my friends were as angry as I was. Mm -hmm. And I just thought, how is everyone not in the streets right now protesting this? You know, again, because I'm like, if, if there's anything that we, can, we can unite behind, it's the treatment of children. And so I, I found myself getting like really frustrated with my friends that they that they didn't care to get more involved. But I also understand because that's where I was at a point in my life. And maybe there were friends that I knew that might have been upset that I hadn't been more involved in an issue that they cared about. And so I recognize that. And it, maybe one day that person will, an issue will arise where they will be shook, you know, mm-hmm. to that level. And then they'll have no choice but to act. And I was just fortunate enough that I was able to have this opportunity. I There's not a day that goes by where I don't acknowledge how lucky I am to be in this position, to be in a position where I wanted to make a difference and I was desperate for meaning I was so unhappy in what I was doing and so to have this opportunity where I my background isn't necessarily in social justice work you know to be given this it's it's like so special to me and yeah I, I, of course I get frustrated when when I you know even with my sisters you know mm. I'm like but I also understand because that's because mm. that's where I was and they have to come to that on their own yeah I think that's a really good uh, great way to wrap things up too and also I guess kind of the common theme that if you listen across episodes, it's, yeah, it's kind of, it just all kind of works out. And also you are, you know, kind of doing your own thing and then ultimately, or sometimes the pieces kind of fall in place. Like in our pilot episode, I kind of talk about how this podcast came to be because I just happened to go to a congressional hearing on Korean American divided families. Wow. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was just sitting there and I was like, I didn't know about this. How come nobody knows about this? And right. But I mean, I couldn't have... Nobody could have told me that and it would have like somebody telling me that would not have been the same thing. And also you can't really find those moments like intentionally. Right. So I think that totally. And I think that's also a good way to kind of make peace with it, too. It's like, you know, you don't really feel any urgency, but I can't make you feel urgency. So eventually maybe you'll find something that speaks to you. So I think that's really good also for the listeners who are kind of you know, frustrated with their friends and whatnot. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I- I, I think I think we're getting there. I think as more and more of these issues are actually encroaching, encroaching is that a word? Enroaching, encroaching, <laughs> infringing, infringing. Okay, got upon it. the rights of actual U.S. citizens, I think maybe people will start to wake up a little more because right now it's it's 
it's immigrants or migrants, asylum seekers. I think once it starts happening to U.S. citizens, which we're already seeing, citizens being detained by CBP because they don't believe they're citizens or because they spoke Spanish somewhere, I think, you know, I think we'll start seeing more involvement. Um, but there is something that I wanted to bring up that I forgot to talk about is the ongoing family separation that's happening oh, yeah. mm-hmm. that also isn't being covered in the media. It, it kind of is, but family separation is still happening, not in the way that it was under zero tolerance, uh, but in many other ways. It's happening in the way that Customs and Border Patrol define a family unit. So they define a family unit as a child and their parent. They don't recognize the relationship between a grandparent or a cousin or even like a brother or sister, they can be separated too. And so when they come to the border, they're pumping out all of these statistics about fraudulent families. And what people don't know is it's because they define a family as strictly a mom or a dad and their child. So we're seeing, you know, grandmothers that have raised their grandchildren from, from, uh, from toddlership, from infancy, uh, being separated that's still happening. Uh, we're also seeing families being separated under the Remain in Mexico policy where, you know, there'll be a family. For example, we had a client. It was two daughters, the mother and father. They presented themselves at the port of entry. They, for some reason, they didn't even give us a reason. They took, they accepted the mother, they, sorry, they accepted the dad and one of the daughters, but they sent the mother and the other little girl back to Mexico so we're seeing a lot of a lot of cases um, like that as well, and and of course with the deportations, that's family separation as well. So there are very there are a lot of different ways in which this is still occurring, um, and sometimes the work is is very overwhelming, and it's very easy to I understand if you're you know. Uh, depending on what perspective it feels like we're barely moving the needle, and sometimes it does. But the strength and complete just conviction and faith that our clients have is what really is what helps keep us going. You know, I can't imagine going through some of the things that they have been through and they still have faith and they can still smile and they, they still hope for a better day. And if we can't be strong for them, then we're doing them a disservice. So, you know, and, you know, and there are, yes, it's, really awful out there but there are some there are success stories and there are stories of hope and those are the ones that you know we hold on to and so those kind of those fuel us for for the change that we that we seek so as bleak as 2020 might look you know I can't keep but drawing um comparisons to like Star Wars and the resistance Mm -hmm. um which I recently got into, nerd plug. Um, <laughs> you, did you watch the latest one? I just watched the latest one, mm-hmm. yeah, and I caught up on all the other ones. But mm-hmm. um, there are some parallels. Like you, it's, you know, very much feel outnumbered and it very much feels like, it doesn't feel like politics anymore. It feels like good and evil sometimes. for tuning in to another episode of the divided families podcast if you're interested in listening to more stories of family separation or learning more about our project please follow us on social media at divided families podcast 
thanks as always to Flannel Albert for the wonderful music, and see you next time.